Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough for you, even if they don't. Today is uh, August 23rd, 2013. This is episode 1193 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. Yeah, we don't have monster trucks. We have monster calls. Your calls to our Think Line. That's 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Also, for those who don't have letters on your phone for whatever reason or another, 866-658-4465, 866-658-4465. That call is toll-free to you in the United States, and I do believe Canada as well, but I'm not sure about that. International users, it may not be. Remember, you can always make uh, very cheap calls on things like Skype. Uh, if anybody has a question for me and for one reason or another can't use that number, occasionally somebody's done something like taken, uh, and made an MP3 and emailed it to me at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com and put question for Jack in the comment, uh, the subject line. And, you know, occasionally those get on the air too. For whatever reason, you can't use the number, but anywhere in the U.S. and I do, again, I do believe Canada, I think that number is a toll free call for you. All right. Uh, important thing on that number, you call it right now, you're going to get a recording, you're not going to get the show, the show's not live, it's a podcast, that means it's pre-recorded. Most of these calls came in, in the last two weeks or less. If you've called more than three weeks ago at this point, you haven't heard yourself on the air yet, uh, you probably didn't get through the screening process, and most likely, lately, it's due to volume. It's not due to uh, a bad call. Very few calls have actually not gotten through the screening because... Uh, I couldn't use the question or the call quality was bad or what have you. It's pretty much just been like call volumes up, and I only can put so many calls on a week, so that's probably why. But if it's more than three weeks ago, I would consider recalling your question. Uh, expert counsel calls, none this week. Um, Stephen Harris, by the way, is on vacation. I won't be taking calls for him. In, uh, and for the next week, if you call for Steve, I'm just going to shelve it and we'll see if we use it or whatever comes in new. Uh, Steve Harris is off till August 31st on vacation. He said, I don't know how many I can do from vacation. My answer to him was none. You can't do any. And I won't give you any because you're supposed to be on vacation. I do want to tell you that there was a call that came in for Ben Falk from somebody from Vermont. Please call you. Please make that call again. Please make that call again and email me when you do, sir, and tell me you've done it, and I will make sure I get it to, to uh, Ben. Uh, the reason I didn't use your call is you are one of the people that did not uh, fit under my description of not having a problem with the calls due to quality. You sounded like you were inside of a soda bottle when you when you left your message. I don't know if it was your connection or what, uh, but you literally sounded like you were shrunk down, a little tiny person inside a soda bottle echoing and booming. It was really weird, and I, I just couldn't use your call. I couldn't really even understand it, but um, it was for Ben Fox. So you probably know who you are. Please, uh, please make that call again, uh, either with better cell signal or a better area or what have you. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our sponsors before I, uh, I get into your calls today. Sponsor of the day number one today is westernbotanicals.com. I love herbals. I really do. Um, I have some shoulder pain I'm dealing with right now, um, basically because I think I slept wrong on my arm. Like I just did something really weird in my sleep, and I didn't wake up. And uh, I've been dealing with some shoulder pain on my left shoulder for the past few days. It's tolerable today. The first day it was awful. I mean, it was, I actually had weakened grip and all because of whatever weird way I laid on my shoulder. I have not taken an aspirin or a Motrin or a Tylenol. I've been using an anti-inflammatory. Uh, from Western Botanicals and an anti uh, and, and a, uh, a deep heating ointment 
uh, from them as well uh, at night. And it's worked as well as anything else without putting any kind of you know harmful things into my system. Uh, the anti-inflammatory is made up mostly of turmeric uh, and some white willow bark and some other cool things. Great stuff. And uh, it's my, my go-to is always herbals. And I try to use things out of the yard, but, you know, we're still developing our system here and what have you. So, uh, you know, when I don't have something or I can't find it or I don't know, know what I need, I call Western Botanicals and they tell me. They're a great company to do business with. They have an incredible selection. They have good pricing. They have a discount program, too. It's 50 bucks a year. You get 25% off everything you order from them. And if you use a lot of herbals like I do, that's a great deal. But if you're a member of my support brigade, guess what? You get that for free. You get that for free from them if you are a member of the Survival Podcast Support Brigade. So that's another reason to join that. Check them out today. If you need something herbal, if it's legal and it's herbal, they have it, and it will either be organically grown or wild-crafted. Next up, harvest eating, a different type of herbal use, right? Uh, you want herbs for, for healing your body, go to Western Botanicals. You want herbs for cooking awesome food, go to Chef Keith Snow at Harvest Eating. Check out his podcast, and uh, I have a big announcement about Chef Keith Snow coming up for you guys uh, later in the uh, show. I'm going to wait on that one. Anyway, HarvestEating.com. Make sure you check out Chef Keith's seasonings and all his other great stuff, and especially his awesome podcast. Uh, next up, want to remind you guys about the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade. If you become a member of the Support Brigade, uh, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. Support the show at about 18.3 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, first responders like paramedics, EMTs, and firefighters, all of you do qualify for a discount. If you email me before, not after you join, put service discount in the subject line, send that email to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. And in one or two sentences, tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if you're prior service, and I'll send you a discount code. Again, please do this before you join. Also want to remind you real quick before I get into kind of a special guest spot thing here um, that the stakeholder program for MT Knives with Patrick Rorman of MT Knives goes live tomorrow. It's an awesome program. Uh, I'll put a link uh, in today's show notes for you about it. If you're not on the email announcement list, get on it, because even if you don't get a knife, and the, there's only 100 of them available for this program, uh, by being on that list, when other stakeholders decide they want to sell knives in the future, uh, you'll have an opportunity to buy these limited edition knives that are going to be incredible. Patrick is one of the most incredible knife makers I've ever met, but he's also one of the most honest, upstanding, forthright um, people that I know. And uh, it gives me a lot of... Uh, a lot of great feelings that I'm able to give back in this way and help him launch this program. He just emailed me this morning and thanked me, and he said, my last day at work will be the 5th of September. That is awesome. Talk about walking to freedom. Sometimes that doesn't mean leaving your state. Sometimes it just means leaving behind things you don't want to do anymore and becoming a full-time uh, whatever you want to be. And in this case, Patrick is an artisan knife maker uh, of the highest caliber. And uh, tomorrow morning... 9 a.m. Central Standard Time at mtknives.com. The, the, the buy now button will go live. It will be a free for all. And, uh, knife 001's already taken. So, uh, get in line and, uh, get on Patrick's email list in case, uh, I mean, if you even if you're not going to maybe get one of those knives, if you want the opportunity in the future, those will be the first people that will have the opportunity for knives from other stakeholders. When a stakeholder says, "Yeah, this third edition knife, I I, I don't want this one. I want to go ahead and sell that at retail to a to a member of the, the general public." So, just all right, folks. And with the uh, housekeeping wrapped up, uh, I've got kind of a first ever 
thing for you today on Survival Podcast. It's actually very rare that I ever have anybody with me in studio. Uh, we usually do all of our interviews by phone or by Skype. Today, I don't only just have that. I have first ever TSP intern, Josiah Wallingford, here with me uh, to talk about two different things. One, to talk about Brink of Freedom, uh, the recent launch of the social media side of Brink of Freedom, and then the big launch today of, I guess we're calling Brink of Freedom Magazine, and then a little bit about what he's doing here as an intern so far. Uh, but, uh, hey, Josiah, man, glad to have you with us today. Can you tell people... Uh, let's start out with the Brink of Freedom uh, website. Uh, what is what is what's up with the uh, the social media side that's already been released out? A lot of people have been confused how it's different from forums, and I think maybe one of the things I should say going in, right? This is your site. This is not a TSP managed site. This is part of your projects here as an intern. When you leave, you take this site with you. So this is Josiah's site. So we got Josiah on to talk about it. So what's up with the? Let's start with just the social media side, man. Sure. Well, the uh, the just the social media side is what we're calling the community, and so on the community, it's a a place where you can share links, photos, stories. But more than that, it's a place where you can create groups, and the groups are areas where you can get together with other preppers on the site and form relationships based on whatever you want it to be. It could be a book club. It could be um, a group that you've actually created in your area, a prepper group. It could be just a, just a group of people from Montana or people from Texas. Whatever you want it to be, that's what the group is. And the, uh, the difference between that and the forums is really – a huge difference. There's, there's First of all, it's its own site. I mean, that's that's one of the big things, right? This is this is your site that you're building your community around, and of course, we're launching it to the Survival Podcast community because we know they're great folks. But this is a larger net, so to speak. It, I mean, Brink of Freedom will attract people that have no idea who Survival Podcast is. But then, for the way it functions, the the forums function differently as well. They're, I mean, they're they're isolated down to the group, right? Oh yeah, they're, it's completely different. So. There is a forums function on community, uh, the community brink of freedom, but I wish they wouldn't even call it forums because what all it really is is it creates a forum, but it's only for the group that you created. And when you create that group, you choose whether your group has a forum or not. But all the forums are on that when they're attached to a group is a place where you can more permanently uh, push content to your group. So if you wanted to uh, organize something and you don't want it to be – because when you're looking at your group, it's just like Facebook. The more you talk, the further down your information goes. Well, when the group has its own forum, the moderator of that group can create the forum and create a post that says, like, if they're scheduling a meetup event or, or whatever, and it's more permanent, their forum. Um, That's cool. And I think, like, the way to think about this is this is, like – Facebook Lite, just for people that are concerned with self-sufficiency and self-reliance. So basically, nobody there sucks, right? <laughs> exactly. Okay, is one thing. And then like it's like it's like Facebook, except we're not part of the prison prison program. We won't share your information with the NSA. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that that's like because some people say, well, why would I use that? Why not I just use Facebook for this? Well, this is an example of where. A uh, young entrepreneur puts together a site, and you know you're not Facebook, so you're not subject to a lot of things Facebook's subject to. And I don't know. I think people still need to worry about their own internet privacy because everywhere you go is tracked. But at least they know that their data is not automatically being uploaded to Salt Lake City. Well, yeah, that, <laughs> and uh, I, th I think it's really cool that 
you know you're going to be with like-minded individuals on the site. And if someone is, we, I mean, we discriminate. <laughs> if someone's on there that is clearly not like-minded, all you have to do is report the user, and you you do that with by their post. And then I can go in, check out the user, make sure that he is, in fact, not supposed to be there, and get rid of him. You can't do that on Facebook. That, that's awesome. That, that's great. Now, We, we, we talked about this as, as, as you've worked on it over the past few weeks, and you decided you wanted to put a blog, and initially it was just going to be a blog that you were going to write on, and then somewhere in all of the madness that's gone on in your first month here, uh, the idea to create really the first ever truly online self-sufficiency, self-reliance magazine came up. So that's what's launching today, right? Can you tell people, like some of the people that are going to be writing, what, what's what's you know available in like the for, the first release, and uh, how they can help with uh, with it long term? Sure. Yeah. So the the main part or the new part of uh, Brink of Freedom, which we just released today, um, the site's now live at brinkoffreedom.net, is a list. It started with me wanting to write blogs about what's going on here during the internship and to share that information with people. Well, that wasn't enough for me. I, uh, I want a place where not only can you get that information from me, but a place where people can read from people in the TSP community and, and like-minded individuals that are writers. People can go there, read their blog or their posts and in one place. And then it just it morphed into so much more than that. So now we have some we have uh, a lot of people that Jack's interviewed as writers. We have um, members of the expert council as writers. We have a lot of the forum users as writers uh, that, that we specifically went through and, and picked out which ones would be best. And uh, and and so we got tons of writers, and they're all from the TSP community so far. And That's really going to be good for the users and and making sure the content's where we want it to be. And, and let me say he's being very generous when he says we because I didn't do a damn thing. <laughs> um, he's been he's been up you know two three o'clock in the morning working on this stuff to get ready for this launch on top of the workload that I have for him out in the yard in the hundred degree heat. So it's not really we. It's it's he should be saying I, but he's just a, a nice guy because uh, all I've done is advise you along the way here on uh, on how to do this and the concept of like going out into like this huge knowledge base that we've developed with TSP over the years and tapping that knowledge base uh, into bringing in people as authors is great. And you have two ways, actually probably three ways people can contribute content. I'll give people the first way. The first way is like the guy has like one article. He sends it to you. You decide whether to run it or not. Yeah, exactly. But, but, and that's, that's the person that's not going to write consistently, but just like I wrote this one thing and it's badass. And okay, we'll look at it and see if it really is badass. And that would be like... If you wrote an article for Backwoods Home and sent it to them, they might run one article like that, uh, an, an episode. You can do more because you don't have to print it and things like that. But then you have two other ways for people that want to be regular contributors to, to get involved. How does that work? Yeah, so the, the two ways of doing that is you can join as a, a contributor or as a columnist. Now, the columnists post once a week. Um, they post an article once a week, and the contributors post um, twice a month. Basically, so <clears throat> what that enables us to do is is on the site when you're reading the site, you're going to get constant updates at at various times, and then at the end of the month, 
um, after everybody's looked through the articles, made their comments, liked the article, you will then have a magazine release, an online magazine that people can just go in and download. Uh, hopefully, we'll have it here on Amazon and on iTunes. Soon so is that going to well. be like a PDF then? Yeah, basically. Okay, so it's going to be a PDF of like the best of the month, all exactly. consolidated down. And we were talking the other night about having like a rating system for the readers to basically say, "I like, I want this one included," and then the re the community actually decides what the best of the best is, which is the best way to go. Have you found a plugin to manage that yet, or do you maybe want a recommendation from anybody out there? Or? No, yeah, we found the plugin. It's okay. uh, it's on the site now. If you when you're done reading the article at the bottom. Um, all it is is a like button. So it's not like liking f a Facebook thing it, or it's not going to change it to Facebook or take you to Facebook. All you're doing is saying, I like this article. And then at the end of the month, I can look through a list and see how many likes each article got. And the most liked articles will be added to the magazine. Well, that's great. So, I mean, that's something that we want to make sure people understand then that when you see that, And you click like, that's what you're doing. It's not, yeah, not like this on Facebook or what have you. Uh, I'm going to shut a window down because that, uh, no, there it loaded. We, we're, I was on a, on a page on Breaker Freedom and one of the articles wasn't loading right. I could see Josiah just cringing. Uh, <laughs> but I loaded up, find an article by Cedar. So I just wanted to make sure I see where this is. So where do I see that? Okay, so it's all the way at the bottom below the author's um, bio. And uh, you can like it down there. It's underneath where you would share it on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, and all that stuff. And I think a really cool thing is how much exposure the uh, the authors get on this. They have complete control uh, over their own bio, right? Yeah. Yeah, they get to completely control what their bio says um, and, and add links to their website, to their Facebook account, to their Twitter account. And you'll see all of that while you're reading the article. Right at the bottom, there's a bio page and some icons underneath for the different areas you can uh, you can view that reader's information or or their social networks that they're part of and, and whatnot. Yeah, I was noticing like it's actually done very very well um, as long as the author actually fills out all their social networks as far as the way they get uh, links to their Twitter, Google Plus, and their WordPress accounts and things. So that's really cool. So it's important for you guys that are writing for this now to realize that all that's there and I really like what you've done in trying to make sure that authors are fairly compensated with exposure because right now that's the only one you're going to get uh, compensated for writing but it is great exposure and I think that one of the things bloggers need to be doing a better job of is understanding what creating readerships about and I consider you a reader a subscriber whatever if you follow my Facebook page because everything goes on there If you watch my YouTube, because lots of stuff goes on. If you've watched my Twitter, because everything goes on there. So it's not just people that RSS subscribe or opt in. It's all of those things. So I like the way you've integrated that. So it's a cool site. Um, and again, it's brinkoffreedom.net. Guys, get over there today and check out some of the great articles. There's even a couple there by me, uh, though they're older articles because I haven't been in writing mode uh, recently. But I've told Josiah you can use any of my content that he wishes to on the site. Um, if you guys out there have articles or anything and you want to uh, to get in touch with Josiah, best way is just go to the site and use the Contact Us, right? So that's part of that. Yeah, yeah. Under the Contact Us, there's multiple forms you can fill out. If you have one-time article you want to submit, if you want to be a columnist or a contributor, you're more than welcome to apply to that. We just ask for two uh, samples of your writing um, to ensure that we want that as part of the community. Is there an area right now 
where because we, what we have is homesteading, health and wellness, politics and economics, and outdoor activities, tactical and firearms is your main categories, and then everything gets broken down by tags below that. Is there one of those that you really could use some contributors for? Uh, health and wellness. We we really like some more input on health and wellness. We do have some some uh, contributors, but we don't have any columnists in in the health and wellness. Uh, so we'd like to see more articles in there. Okay, very cool. Let's let's t change gears for just a second here. Can you tell folks about some of the projects you've been working on uh, here at at, um, at my homestead and uh, what it's been like in the 106-degree August heat? Yeah, it's been a, a, a little bit of blood and a lot of sweat. Uh, the the uh, projects that we've been working on is a water, ca uh, water catchment system, um, setting up the uh, starting to set up the aquaponics system, uh, expanding the garden paths, doing a, uh, a Jeff Lawton-style compost, um, We're doing a kegerator. There's just tons of projects. It's like, and and just being in the internship is really like being at a workshop full time, and it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you got some. You got to you got to find some uh, cardboard over the next weekend because no matter how hard you have to work, we need those uh, <laughs> those paths taken care of. <laughs> yeah, I got to get those done before the workshop here. Um, it's yeah, expanding those paths. Basically, what we're doing is we're we're taking out the existing paths. Um, Expanding them uh, another what do you, what would you say two feet? feet yeah yeah and then uh, taking all the dirt out laying down a ton uh, two layers of uh, thick cardboard uh, completely soaked and then we're just mulching on top of that and that's that's going to keep all the weeds down um, from coming up there at least until the cardboard degrades yeah yeah. Well, I, 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 that, you, you really only have to work that hard for the front. The the, the, the center paths are going to be a lot easier on you. But I think the, the most enjoyment I've had since you've been here on the projects we're working on has been the uh, base for the aquaponics system and the way we've been kind of piecing it together, and it just has fallen into place. And it went from this murky, cloudy thing when we first turned it on, and today it's, it's you know, you go out there and there's minnows swimming around and the one sunfish survived his trip home yesterday so he's in there and there's goldfish and dragonflies are starting to use it and you made a comment like i can't wait to get home and do this at my place <laughs> except i can only do it six months out of the year but i think that like what we're doing here i've actually never seen it done this way before and i think when it's done it's going to become a template because it's really easy to do yeah yeah it's it's been super easy to set up and it's just a really cool idea i, I can't wait for people to be able to see it i'm I, as, it, as it progresses, and once we're done, I'll have a full article on it on the Brink of Freedom. Cool. Well, I've got a quick announcement here before we let you go and get back to work. Um, you're going to be excited about it. People that get to come to the workshop are going to be excited about it because you've been on and on. Get Keith Snow to come to the workshop. Get Keith. Keith has agreed to actually come. So Keith will be here for our workshop. Um, he'll have to bunk with Nick uh, in, the, in the guest room in there, but uh, we'll sort that out between the two of them. Now, but Keith Snow's going to be here cooking at our workshop in October. Oh, man, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So I figured you'd be happy to hear that. And, again, uh, folks, the website that Josiah has put together, brinkoffreedom.net. Get on over there. Start reading articles. Start sharing them with others on Facebook and uh, Twitter. And if, if you want to get involved and be a contributor, do so. And, and if you know you don't want to really do that and write articles and all, the group's function is awesome. And if there's been something you really wouldn't want to – kind of rally people around this would be a good place to do it so hey man thanks for joining us for a bit this morning and uh don't you have some work to be doing yeah i do i'll get out of here <laughs> all right man okay guys with that let's go ahead and take your first call today on the survival podcast 
Hey, Jack, this is Redfoot out in North Carolina. Wondering if you could help me with my lacto-fermentation of cucumbers. They keep coming out really, really salty. Um, using the uh, amount of salt to amount of water that you recommended in your lacto-fermentation show, um, and I only threw in some uh, dill and some red pepper flakes and some coriander seeds, but they come out crazy salty to the point that my fiancé just knelt down with them. Any recommendations? Thanks again. All right, well, um, the recipe I use is six tablespoons of salt, and it's, I guess it's important to note, just in case here, that six tablespoons is actually six tablespoons, not six heaping uh, tablespoons or six serving spoons, but six tablespoons to a gallon of water. And the way I generally do that to make sure I've got it right is I just take six tablespoons of, of, of sea salt and put it into uh, a gallon jug, and then I add water and shake it up. And if I happen to need more water, you know, I can do you know three tablespoons to a half gallon, and that way I, I'm sure of what I've done. Um, but if it and, and I have to say that I've never found my pickles to be salty. I don't know if I have a higher salt tolerance than others, but I've often found when I make pickles like this, I'll often salt them and put salt and pepper on them a little bit um, when I eat them. But uh, what we're doing when we do lacto-fermentation is there's lactobacillus bacteria on everything. And we can, we can accelerate it a little bit by taking like a tablespoon of whey, from uh, yogurt and, and putting that into our fermenter. And I usually do do that as a kind of Kickstarter. And when I do that, by the way, it's usually, I usually make yogurt cheese. So what, this is a cool little aside here. You want to make some yogurt cheese to put on your vegetables and things like that. It's just great. Get some good yogurt, good quality, organic, whole fat yogurt. There's no such thing as low fat yogurt. It's a lie. You make yogurt with whole milk. Real yogurt is made with whole milk, period. So plain, regular yogurt. Get some cheesecloth. Uh, put the yogurt in the cheesecloth, tie it up with a string, and let it hang for about 10 hours. And put something underneath it because it's going to drip whey. Now you have whey, and you can use whey for lots of things. I like to drink it, but you can use it for turbocharging your fermentation. And you have this yogurt cheese. Chop up some chives and basil and garlic and mix it in there and put that on like pieces of pepper or celery or whatever. It's awesome. So anyway, back to the actual question and problem. Um, try cutting the salt down by half. And you shouldn't have a problem. What I was getting to the point there is we're trying to make sure the water is salty enough to inhibit the growth of other bacteria so that only the lactobacillus can tolerate the salinity. It's probably the case that a 50% uh, amount of salt uh, in that recipe is sufficient. If you get soft, not-so-nice pickles... That way you may have some other things getting in there and you'll know it and then throw them away. It's only cucumbers. It's not worth eating something that would possibly, you know, in, in a very long uh, uh, way around things make you sick. But, I mean, it's, it's an inherently safe thing to be experimenting with because, again, when you have a fermentation go wrong, you'll know it. Your, your nose won't let you make that mistake. If you're a little concerned, try reducing it by uh, a third, by 30%. So instead of six, and it's probably a better way, go from six tablespoons to a gallon to four. Uh, that will be a 33% reduction. I have a sneaking suspicion that this is what's going on. I have a sneaking suspicion you're making your pickles in a giant ball jar or something like that, 
and instead of a, a croc. And that, I don't know why, but I just think that's going to have a different result and maybe make saltier pickles because it's going to let temperatures swing more radically and maybe not let things even out as much. I use a fermentation croc when I do it, and I, I, I don't ever have a problem with salt. Um, the recipe that I use, I don't really use their recipe, but the, the ratio of water to salt I got on a website called wildfermentation.com on their article, Making Sour Pickles. I'll put a link in today's show notes to that. But I'll tell you what I do. I use that ratio that I told you, and I have. I might actually myself, the next time I make them, cut the salt back to four tablespoons to a gallon. I think that's sufficient, and maybe we don't need as much salt as, as I've been using anyway. But I take that, I take a big handful of dill, a big handful of garlic. I use garlic both whole cloves and a few chopped up, and I put a bunch of garlic and dill in there, and a big handful of whole black peppercorns. And that goes in there, and then I put the pickles in. If they're small enough, I do them whole. If they've gotten a little bit big on me, I'll cut them in half or quarters. And I love crock pickles. I mean, it's one of the just so awesome. I wish I lived in a place with a root cellar like I had growing up, and I would have what my grandmother had in our root cellar if I did. Um, I had two, we had two big uh, crock barrels. And one every fall, she'd fill up with cabbage and make sauerkraut. And the other one, she'd make pickles, and we would just go down there and get pickles or sauerkraut whenever we wanted, and it, you know, it would last because it was such a big crock. Um, I just can't keep stuff like that in this climate, and I don't have a basement, and I'm not going to with the ocean floor uh, rock that's that's you know just a foot under my soil. Uh, but uh, that's what I would try: cut it down by a third, try that. If you don't like it, cut it down by half. I would not go lower than that personally. Let's take another call. Uh, hey, Jack, this is uh, Kentucky Sergeant again. Uh, this time i got a question or more of a comment about uh, tips for beginning gardeners. Um, I've been able to uh, turn the switch on for a few people that are very, very new to garden in the last couple of years just by kind of showing them some of the great stuff that I've gotten out of my garden. Uh, but people quickly get frustrated because, uh, as you might remember, first year, maybe even the first two years, uh, it's a little frustrating. There's a big learning curve. Things die on you. Uh, plants get diseases. Plants get insects. Uh, and some things that you really want to grow just might not grow in your area. So the uh, as I've tried to flip the switch on for people, I've tried to keep them encouraged that first year is really, really hard, and you may not get exactly what you, what you want to get. Um, any other tips that you can offer... Uh, the one one really good tip that I've thrown out for people when they're first starting out is get yourself some really lightweight, long sleeve, long leg pants, uh, beige color or a neutral color. Uh, that will really mitigate the amount of insect repellent that you have to use and sunscreen you have to use. Um, I can wear a long sleeve beige or, or very light colored uh, shirt and pants in the middle of Kentucky summer and not get too overheated because it reflects a lot of the sunlight and the bugs just are not really attracted to those colors. Um, so it seems really basic, but most people don't think it, and then they go out there and start uh, gardening and get attacked by uh, all kinds of insects that just think that they're one big beautiful flower. All right, anything else you can offer for some of my friends that when they're just starting out to not lose hope and to uh, not get too frustrated? Really appreciate it. Thanks for all you do, Jack. Bye. Well, certainly good advice with the uh, the lightweight, long-sleeve uh, clothing actually is much better in a lot of hot environments. 
Um, and I think that something that maybe you're missing that's important about that, if you're not putting on sunscreen and bug repellent, it's not on your hands, and you're not getting residues on your plants, and it may help with having less problems with your plants. Just saying. Um, I agree completely, and he, this is partly... Like, lately, I've made a few comments on YouTube about... Uh, Larry Hall did a, a thing about the Back to Eden Garden uh, movie. And basically saying there's a lot of inaccuracies in that film. And I even offered to let Larry interview me on it. And I, you know, I promised to be nice to uh, to Paul, the guy that actually is the speaker in the video. Um, and, and people sometimes wonder, like, you know, are you hard on that movie because it's so biblically based and you're a deist? And, nah, absolutely not. I don't... I have no, you know, my my feelings about faith are this way. If you can't hear somebody else talk about their faith, you have a problem. Uh, it's nothing to do with that. There's just some major inaccuracies in there. Uh, statements like "this works everywhere, every time." No, it doesn't, right? And I think that one of the biggest things that you can do to keep a person motivated as a new gardener, as a new permaculturist, is never tell them stupid crap like that because it doesn't always work everywhere. And then what happens is they go out and they do it, and they say, well, I must have a black thumb because it works everywhere and it doesn't work for me. Um, expectations that first year are critical to, to keeping those expectations managed. Uh, I think one of the best things that people can do in their first year is plant plants from a nursery and get them in the ground as early as possible, uh, but make sure they're past the frost. I think a lot of people, when they decide they want to do a garden, and they've never done one before, and by the time it gets warm enough to work outside and all, and they get a garden dug, and then they plant that garden in, like, June. You know, and it's just, the plants just don't get the, the and in some climates, I guess you can, or you have to, but in many climates, even fairly far north, the plants just don't get the roots established before the heat comes. And, and, you know, they might even look fairly large, but they don't have that root establishment down. And that is so critical to handling the stress of the heat. Um, I think the other thing is understanding what you're doing. You're creating an ecosystem. Okay, you're creating a, a, a complete ecosystem. And when you put the first parts of it in, I don't care if Mel Bartholomew says you can just mix these three things and stick them in there and have great results. Sometimes you might, sometimes you might not. There's life that has to come in and colonize the soil. And your first year, you really have to look at it as a pioneering endeavor. I think it also makes sense to plant a ton of different things, and then the, your second year, focus on at least some of the things that did well. If they did well the first year, they'll probably do even better the second year. And, and don't get discouraged, and take your time with it, and understand that it's a building process, and that if you do it right over time, it will get better and better and better and better. So don't judge your, your final results by your first year's efforts. And something really amazing happens when people start gardening and really doing it right and taking the time to do it. The whole property becomes more fertile. Places you never touched, all of a sudden there's like a volunteer watermelon growing. And you're like, how did that get? And it's like, it's just growing completely on its own. It doesn't get any care and it does better than one in your garden. It's because you've created this life web on your property. So if, if, if that's what you're really doing, if you're building a life web, It's reasonable that it might take a few years for that to happen. You know, and it's, it's hard, not just for new people. It's hard for people that know what they're doing and have been doing it a long time when you've gotten spoiled because you got one property up. I mean, that's, I had Arkansas for two years just booming, just exploding with, 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 with life. 
And then you come here and everything's barren and you do everything the right way, but there's still some failures and lackluster and I got hit with hail. So if it happens to somebody that's been doing it their whole life, it, it's going to happen to new people too. And I think one of the things that experienced gardeners, especially in, in permacultures with blogging and all, it, once you get experience, you have a tendency to not want to share when things go wrong. Because like I'm the guy that's supposed to know what I'm doing. I don't. We need to share when we have our failures, because that way they don't feel like, well, everything that guy does just turns to gold, and I can't get anything to work. And I think that's very demotivating for people. And I, I think it's highly inaccurate. So I would say that like you know, there's great resources. Back to Eden Film is a great resource for a new gardener to understand. It's okay to mulch. The guy at the nursery that says it's going to take all the nitrogen away is wrong, and it's it's okay. But let me tell you something: if you put down 10 inches of wood mulch and you don't put a lot of fertility addition into the soil, not only do you just have too much mulch, but you are going to have nitrogen uptake issues in your first year. There's just no way around it. You're going. It's too much. So that you can't overdo it, you can do it everywhere, and you don't need anything else. Attitude is just short-sighted. And I, I, I would say that about some of the work Merrill Bartholomew has done with square foot gardening. Um, some of his densities and planting how many in a one square foot are a little bit overly optimistic for full-size plants. Um, all of these methods are sold as being foolproof and easy and what have you. And the reality is... Any gardener is probably going to start off with somebody's method and then evolve it to fit their ecosystem. And that's something to keep in mind. And that's, you know, it's not just that your land will get better, you'll get better. Because I think that another problem that new people to gardening have is they think that the, the property is it, right? And then the land and the soil and water is it. And if you just threw seeds there, that everybody would get the same results on the same piece of land if all the same inputs were used. And you really, it's not that way. It's almost something you can't explain, but there's, there's things that over time you just look at a plant and go, oh, that plant needs a little bit of uh, fertility right now. It could use a little bit of some organic fertilizer, a little compost addition, something. And somebody else standing next to you looks at it and goes, how do you know? And you go, I don't know. I just know. And, and the, the thing is, you know then, and you shore up that plant's vitality before it goes into crisis, where once it's got really pale yellow leaves and it's looking kind of sickly and bugs are attacking it, you can fertilize it then and you might bring it back, but it will, it will be so much further along a month from now if it never goes through that, that, that misery, so to speak. And it's got really healthy systems going on. And, You can't really teach that. You'll just learn. You'll just look at a plant and go, there's, yeah, it's not, it's not where it should be right now. And a lot of times that's from, you look at other plants and they basically all have the same solar exposure and everything. They're the same bed, the same water. And one just does it and you just like, I'm just going to give that one a little blood and bone meal. And, uh, I'm going to give it, I'm going to come out and hand water it in the middle of the day for a couple of days just to, just to get it up to snuff. And, I can't tell you when to do that, but but you'll you'll figure it out. And I think that's that there's all little intricacies like that where, you know, I was realizing how much I've learned about sorghum this year because when I planted my sorghum, I didn't really pay attention to where what went where. And I'm walking through and I forgot that I had leftover Mennonite sorghum from Arkansas and I planted some of that and I'm walking through and I look at the seed heads on it and I go, gee, I thought that was that popping sorghum. No, that's Mennonite sorghum. And I'm like, okay, that's black amber. Okay, that's white giant. Uh, okay, that's rocks orange. That's, and I was like, I could identify all these sorghums just by looking at their seed heads. And the beginning of this year, I would have went, I don't know. 
And, and you see, that only happens when you get in the game and start playing. Anyway, I think those are all good things for new people to understand. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is uh, Richard Morgan from Alaska and Idaho. I just had a quick, another question. I was listening to your uh, listener feedback from the other day about the uh, officers involved in the uh, radio animal rights guy getting detained. You talked about how basically kidnapping was, you know, if you use force or the threat of force, i.e. having a weapon and saying that someone can't leave unlawfully, um, how does that fit into detaining someone that may be a burglar on your property? Um, I know that probably, once again, varies by state by state, but would that possibly be in some of the more liberal interpretations of of uh, castle doctrine and whatnot in your in different states uh, possibly you know be something that could happen to you if you found someone in your house um, you didn't have to fire but you pulled your gun on them and they dropped what they were doing and you actually detained them for the police to arrive um, could that possibly be something I know it may seem um, you know pretty pretty obvious but uh, with the law sometimes there's a lot of any window and, and uh, common sense and, and uh, the obvious conclusion isn't always what's uh, actually going to happen. So thanks again, and uh, hope to hear us on the show. Bye. Um, that's a great question for two reasons. One, it's just a great question, and two, it gives me the opportunity and a reminder to correct something I got wrong. When I said that if a law enforcement officer uh, holds a person without a lawful detainment. And in other words, there's no reason for detainment. The person is asked to leave and they're told they can't leave and they should have never been detained in the first place, that it's kidnapping. It's actually not kidnapping. I'd have to take you somewhere for it to be kidnapping. It's it's called unlawful or wrongful imprisonment in different states. One is, you know, some say lawful, unlawful, some say wrongful imprisonment. And, and I guess that if you ever got into that case with doing it to another person and you were not a cop, you would have the same charge. It, it doesn't really matter. Either way, it's a felony. Now, somebody breaks into my house, and I point a gun at them and say, lay your ass on the ground or I'm going to blow your freaking brains out. And I dial 911, and the police come and take over. Am I going to be law liable for that? Uh, likely not. Here's why. Once you're in my home, I have a reasonable expectation that you could be a danger to my safety. Which is why I can, I can just about in any state, even if they don't have a castle doctrine or something like that, once you're in my house and, and I don't know what's going on and I don't know you and you don't know me, if I shoot you, it's almost always going to end up being a clean shoot because I don't know if you're armed and I know you don't belong there and you know you don't belong there. In this instance, it's not really making a citizen's arrest. It's I don't want to kill you. I don't know if this is safe or not. And I will kill you if you do anything other than sit there and wait for the police to come sort this out. I'm not a lawyer, and this might be a question for a lawyer to answer, but I have never heard of, in the United States of America, this ever happening. And I think if it did, the, uh, the, 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 the backlash from the public on whoever did it from a prosecution standpoint would be uh, unbearable. I don't think you'd ever get a jury to convict of that. Now... This is the thing. Most things in the world are not black and white, but shades of gray. So this could, this could be a very different scenario. Let's say that you were a friend of mine and you were in my home. 
and I saw you take something from my house and put it in your pocket, and you're stealing from me, but you're my friend and I know you. I don't really have a reasonable expectation that you're a danger, and if I tell you to put it back and, and you don't, and then I say, here's my gun, put it back, and you say, no, I'm not going to put it back for whatever dumb reason, and I'm just trying to make something up here that would fit into this, and, and you say, I'm leaving now. And I say, if you leave, I'm going to kill you. And I hold you there. You don't leave. I don't shoot you. I just hold you there. It might very well be that I might come up with a wrongful imprisonment. I don't know. But I could, it's possible. If I've just decided that I'm angry with you, and I say, put it back, and you say, sure, I wasn't taking it anyway. I just wanted to know if it fit in a pocket. It, it sounds stupid, but maybe you did. Maybe it was something that, and we misunderstood each other. And, and now I say, no, you were stealing. You're going to wait for the police. I'm calling the police. It's almost, almost definite that it, at least the case could be made that I've done that. But somebody breaking your house at night, where it gets gray is when you know the other person. It's your brother-in-law and you got to fight. Um, how would it work out if, Your brother-in-law's over. He gets in an argument with your wife. He backhands her in the face. Instead of doing what you really want to do, which is jump on him and beat the living shit out of him, you pull out your forty-five and say, dude, hit the ground. That's assault on my wife, and you call the police. Is that wrongful imprisonment? Would a case be made? I don't know, but it's possible. It's possible. If you pull out your gun and say, get out of my home, and he left and you called the police, that seems more like the way it should be handled. But there's all... See, and then the gray just, it just spirals in the gray, doesn't it? If he's all hopped up on dope and that's why he hit your wife and he's always had a problem with that, and he was actually hitting his sister, by the way, if it was your brother-in-law, right? So it's, they've got a family history. This guy's got a problem. He's on dope, and I let him go outside. He might go get a shotgun out of the truck, so therefore I, held, I told him to get on the ground and call the police. It's, it's all of these areas, it just gets muddy. But I, I in, in each situation, and okay, here's what I would say. Let's say I had a scumbag brother-in-law like this. Let's say my wife actually had a brother. Uh, I guess it could be your brother's sister, your sister, your wife's sister's husband would also be your brother. One way or another, right? And this is going on. And I know this guy has a gun, and I know the guy's on dope or something like that, and I think he might go out to his car and get his gun. I'd probably hold him there and risk the charge, making a judgment call. And I would say, this is why I think the guy's got a gun in his truck. The way he was, he was acting, I was afraid he'd go in there and come back in shooting. I didn't want to kill him, so I told him to stay put. Right? I mean, again, it's all situational. But I think that in general, in situations like this, if you follow your conscience and try to do the right thing, in most instances, you won't face an illegal charge. You won't face a charge that, that was like the prosecutor is doing it because he can. And that's that's where these things get dangerous. It's not, you know, is this a place where legitimately charges should be filed? And you go, no, it's not. But then you look at it and go, can a prosecutor pull this off? And in some cases, bad prosecutors will try. But it also has a lot to do with the law enforcement officers that responded to the situation. And it has to do with, does the person that you've held at gunpoint 
or just said, if you move, I'm gonna, and you're just a big guy. If you, because think about this, right? It doesn't have to be a gun. It doesn't have to be a weapon. Let's say I, I'm what I'm, I am. I'm a 200 pound guy. All right. And let's say you're a 130 pound guy. You walk with a limp and you can't fight your way out of a wet paper bag. And I just push you down on the ground and say, if you get up, I am gonna beat the crap out of you. Don't move until law enforcement gets here. I've held you by force, even though there's no weapon involved. Because I legit, there's a legitimate expectation that I can make good on my threat. I might even say, I'll beat you to death, and I might be able to do it. Okay, That's the same as if I pointed a gun at you. It's the, it, not as far as there's the gun involved in the crime, and is there a gun component to the crime? No. But the use of force to hold the person in place. right? If I grab you by the neck... And I drag you somewhere and hold you there. Now it's kidnapping because I've moved you. Doesn't matter that I didn't have a gun. It means I physically did it. So all of these areas get gray. But my, my advice would be, in the end, we do what's necessary to preserve, preserve the safety of our life and the life of our families and the people we care about. And if possible, to avoid using lethal or seriously injurious force on the, on the other party. So I want to always use the least amount of force necessary to provide for the safety and protection of my family. If someone wants to run away, and I, I, and I really think that when they run away, they're not coming back. They're, they're in f true flight. Then I'm going to report to the police where, what direction they went. If I have any expectation that, that they're legitimately a potential threat to return, then I may not allow them to leave. It's all situationally dependent. Where am I? How weak are we? Is it, you know, if, if I've got a situation where I know I can lock the doors, go into one room, lock that door, be in a safe room and, and wait, you know, I, I may very well let that person go to flight, even if I think they might come back. Because I can actually then put myself into a much more defensible position. And sure, let them, let them try to beat on the door or whatever while the cops come. And if they get through two doors and I kill them then, well, I did everything I could. And I think that's the attitude we need to have. Occasionally I make a joke like, you know, if you break into my house, you'll get a dirt nap. And, and, and the reality is, in some instances, you will. But it's never what I want. It's never what I want the result to be. I, I have never in my life had to take another human life. Uh, the day I'm laid to rest, if it's never happened, will be one of the best things that could have ever occurred during my life is to never have to do that. I never want to ever take a human life, and I never want to seriously harm anybody either. I mean, I don't even want to just you know beat somebody you know within an inch of their life. And the only way I'm going to do it is if I'm trying to get a knife away from them and they're trying to kill me. You know, I, I don't want to ever really harm another human being, um, but I will to preserve the life and safety of myself and other innocent people. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. My question is, what are my options for my 401k account, and what would And would it be wise to stop contributing, which is 6% from my paycheck, and my company matches 3%? The details are, I have currently have about $22,000 in my 401k account and want to use the money for a down payment on a house. As I've been told by my employer, I can use about half of it, which is about $11,000, for um, a loan, but I'd have to pay it back over a 30-year term. Is there a way I can take it out without paying it back, and what would the consequences be? If I didn't pay it back, I do believe that if the economy fails and our 
currency is devalued, my 401k won't be worth anything one day. And I'd rather use the money now instead of wait till then. Please let me know what my options are. Thank you. Okay, I, I basically hate 401ks because I find them entirely too limiting. If your employer matches 3% of your contributions, then, then this would be the, the, the you know, limited financial advice I'm willing to give would be immediately then to cut your contributions to no more than 3%. And if you want to save the other 3%, so you're contributing 6%, take that other 3% and put it in a Roth IRA and, and self-manage it. Um, I can see using a 401k when you have a 100% employer match up to 3% or up to 5% and you have the ability to save money. That is a, a, an immediate, even though you have to wait through the vesting period and all to have it, but in general, it's, you can look at it as an immediate 100% gain on your money. And you don't have to do real well with money after that to, uh, to get a very good return over the next 10 years. So that's the one area. And if I, if, if somebody says to me, well, let's say I, I still was the, you know, working Joe kind of guy and had a job and I had a job and they said, well, we have a 401k program and we do a zero dollar match. I'd say, well, then zero dollars is exactly what I'm going to be contributing. So I would only contribute up to the employer match and I would self manage the rest of your money. And I would not even advise anybody to put all their money into retirement. If you're saving money and you can only save 6% of your salary, if you'd come to me, uh, years ago and said, what do I do? I would have said, well, put 3% into a retirement vehicle, 401k or IRA, fine. Take the other half and put it into a savings account in a bank. And right now you wouldn't be asking this question. You just go, all that money is there. Okay. Now the merits of a 401k loan. There's, there's a couple things at play here. Number one, the $11,000 would roughly work out to being a second mortgage on a home. Okay. Now, the good news is you're paying the money back to yourself. That's a better deal than you'll ever get from a bank. Uh, it's why you can actually make the case also for doing things like borrowing against a whole life policy because you're paying the money back to yourself. It's not free money, but at least you're recouping the principal. Okay, so that... That has some merit. The problem is multi here. Number one, if you don't have enough money for a down payment on a home outside of your retirement account right now, you're probably not ready to buy a home. When you buy a home, there's going to be all kinds of additional expenses in that first year. Uh, and, and, you know, you, maybe you just need to put your nose to the grindstone, cut off all of your saving into the 401k for a while and save for a house. It may be what you want to do. Um, though... If you're going to borrow money for a down payment, this would be one of the better ways to do it, okay? And the reason is because you're paying yourself back. I'd rather you borrow $11,000 from your own retirement account than a payment reschedule on $11,000 or $11, over 30 years is pretty daggone minimal. Uh, I would try to pay it off in a lot less time. Uh, it's not going to be tax deductible the way most things that would be financed for a home would be as far as I know because it's already pre-tax dollars anyway and you've done it basically an early withdrawal that you have to repay. So now what about just taking the money out? Just saying I want to pay the interest and penalties. Honestly, it's probably a better option. You would pay a 10% penalty plus you'd pay taxes on it. So $11,000 maybe you'd get $8,500. There's a problem with that. You probably can't do it with a 401k. If it was an IRA, you could just do it. If it was a 401k but you had left your job, you could probably do it. Most 401ks do not allow you to do an early withdrawal and pay the penalties while you're still employed. So it's probably not an option. In some instances, though, it would just alleviate – it would just be like consider an interest. 
right? And, and so if it was a four, if it was an IRA or a 401 from a former employer, I might advise you to at least run the numbers and, and, and consider doing that. Here's the next problem, though. This is the biggest problem for you. When you want to get a mortgage, banks and lenders want to know everything they can about how you're doing it. And it may be that you w might not be able to secure your loan if they found that you've tapped your retirement account in order to acquire the proceeds necessary to close on the house. Why would that be the case? Number one, because you've created an additional debt obligation. They don't care that it's back to yourself. It's another debt obligation. Um, so your, your debt-to-income ratio has changed. Two, you've demonstrated that you did not have the capacity to acquire the, the capital necessary for the purchase of the house uh, in a conventional way. So it, you might want to check with a, a lending broker and say in advance, if I am to acquire my, my money for closing and maybe my 3% down or whatever it is, if you're doing an FHA loan, um, by doing this, would it have an adverse effect? And you know, what are your other assets? Um, you know, if your retirement account is your only major asset, that, that could be, diff, you know, make this matter worse. In the end, I probably wouldn't do this personally. I just wouldn't. I, I don't like borrowing from a retirement account. If it's the only way you can get into a house and, and you really feel that now is the time and you really feel that you can afford it and you got the, you can get the right rates, et cetera, um, then, then maybe this is a personal choice you make. But I wouldn't sanction it, so to speak. I wouldn't say, Jack Spierko endorses your decision to do this. It would be, Jack Spierko's telling you you're a grown man and you can do anything you want, and I don't see this as being bad enough to go, no, don't do it, if that makes sense. My advice would be cut off the contributions and start saving like a madman. Wherever you're, When you buy a house, you're probably already planning on paying more for the house than you are in rent. Where's that money going to come from? Uh, you need to create the additional savings now so that it's available for payments on principal then. And if that's the only money you have, you're probably not ready to buy a house because you're not ready to lose a job and have to pay for your house for three to four months without an income. And you're not ready to buy a house until you can do that. Um, it, 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 it's the responsible way to buy a house, and a lot of the misery that we had in 2008 and 2009 would have never occurred if people had followed that advice. So I would go into a savings madman uh, activity right now. I would save every penny you can, and I would say we're going to come up with a plan. We're going to figure out how much it goes in a month and how much we need to close and how much we need as a buffer and how much a month do we need to save to get to there in the next 18 months, 24 months. Lastly, everybody, stop this crap about that. If the economy collapses, my 401k is going to be worthless. If the economy collapses, the debt on your house is going to be worthless. You're going to be thrown out in the street anyway, the way you're talking about. Um, you, you, you can't justify a bad financial decision with the economy will be bad. Bad financial decisions in a bad economy become worse financial decisions, not better ones. There's too much hype and fear. When you hear my anger there, it's not at you. It's at all the crap and all these shark oil salesmen that want to sell silver or tell you that getting into debt is good or whatever this crap is. Stop buying into their shit. Okay? Really. Remember this. You can always, at some point, if you leave that employer, roll that 401k into an IRA Take the money out and pay the penalties in the future. Once you take it out, you can't put it back in. 
unless you do the loan. Again, the loan, let's say this is the case. Let's say you're sitting on 20 grand. Okay? How would I think this loan's a good loan? You're sitting on $20,000 in cash. You need about $10,000 to close on your house. You say to yourself, I'm much more comfortable with $20,000 in cash in case something goes wrong. And I'm going to borrow that money and pay it back in four years or five years instead of 30. And that way I'm going to preserve my capital reserve. The money's instantly accessible if something goes wrong. And I'd rather have that $10,000 applied here right now than to my long-term retirement. And I'm using it so that I can continue to maintain the buffer. Or I need $10,000 to close and I have $11,000 and I don't want to close and only have $1,000 left. Those are scenarios where I'd be more likely to say, go ahead and take the loan. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Cole from West Virginia. I'm a long-time listener but a first-time caller, and my question is this. Is it safe to eat coal-mining pigeons? I work at a coal processing plant in southern West Virginia, and we have two large concrete silos used for coal storage that are both approximately 100 feet tall. At the top of each silo is a large enclosed area where large numbers of pigeons like to roost. I know that pigeon as a species is safe to eat, but do you think being around an industrial environment like this would render their meat inedible? We are several miles from the nearest town, but there are a few mines, houses, and gas stations that are certainly within flying distance. If you do think that they would be safe to eat, what do you think would be the best way to catch them, given their location on mine property? Thanks for your answer, and I appreciate all that you do. You've made a tremendous difference in my life. Bye. Interesting question. If you would have said, tell me what you think the next question is going to be before I screen this call, I would have never guessed it was going to be about coal pigeons. So let's see, you've got some big silos you're keeping coal in. Uh, it's probably a coal breaker operation then because you don't put lumps of coal into a silo. Uh, so you're probably going to have like wheat or rice or buckwheat coal, some small coal, uh, furnace coal, something like that, nut coal. Uh, showing a little bit of my coal miner background there, but nut coal is about the size of a nut, pea coal is about the size of a pea, rice coal is about the size of rice. Uh, the issue with coal like that is it's very dusty. And uh, you probably got a lot of dust being kicked up in there, so that's a concern that the pigeons are breathing in that dust and breathing in that carbon and sulfur and everything else. So would these be optimum pigeons? Uh, probably not. I'd probably look elsewhere for my pigeons. If I was hungry and they were the only thing to eat, would I eat them? Yeah, and you're probably not going to fall over and die. The reality, though, is these birds are probably not in that bad of health from this stuff, or they wouldn't hang out there. Wildlife's pretty smart, and uh, they're not going to eat it. They might use a little bit of his grit, but that's not likely either. I've never seen birds pick coal for grit, and usually it's not small enough anyway. Um, my concern is more of the breathing, and it's getting into their lungs, and basically you've got black lung pigeons, and then you've got the toxins associated with coal in their bodies, but it's probably minimal, if anything at all. But if you really wanted to be dead set on eating pigeons, I would try to find other pigeons before I, I, I fell back to these. Now, as far as catching these pigeons, I wouldn't try to catch them up in the coal, uh, the coal silo. I wouldn't set traps up there and have to climb up there, and I wouldn't worry about where they're at at all. The fact that they're in the area is all that you need to know. If I wanted to catch these pigeons or any other pigeons, this is how I would do it. I would get a, uh, something that they like to eat, and I would start spreading it in an area. I'd spread that in an area for uh, for a few weeks until I started having those pigeons show up. If I can get them to the point where, like, when they see me throw it, they come down, even better. 
once I did that, I would uh, get a couple boxes. And I would build these boxes out of one-by-twos. And I would build basically a frame of a box about three feet by three feet square, about two foot deep, and I put chicken wire on four sides, leave the bottom open and the top open. And I would put those boxes out there. And I would start feeding. I put feed inside those boxes, outside those boxes, around those boxes, on a ledge of those boxes, and those birds will keep feeding there. And they'll get used to those boxes. Okay? They'll go in the box, and they'll fly out of the box. And they'll go in the box, and they'll lose all fear of the box. After a couple weeks of that, I would take... And you could do this right away, but you'll have better success if you accustom them to the boxes first. The top of the boxes, I'd take a heavy-gauge wire, and I'd put a grid on them, like a tic-tac-toe grid, about four-inch square. And I'd just keep feeding them. And what's going to happen is the pigeon's going to come sit on that box, and he's going to look down inside there where the food is, and he's been in and out of that box a hundred times before, and nothing ever ha bad happened. So he sees a hole, you know, kind of some stuff in the way. There's a four-inch hole. I can get in there. Folds his wings, and he goes down in the box. What do you think happens when he tries to fly away? Since he can't walk through the hole, he tries to fly out of the box. Well, with his wings spread, he can't get back through the grid that you've created. So then you just walk over, you stick your hand down in the box, you grab the pigeons and pull them out. The way you grab a pigeon so that you can hold them is you take your, 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 so you get your thumb out, make the Vulcan sign, right? The Vulcan live long and prosper sign. You've got your ring finger and pinky off to one side and you've got your pointer finger and index finger off to the other and your thumb on the top. You go underneath the pigeon and the legs, the two feet on the bottom, go right between that Vulcan sign. You pinch down like the Vulcan neck pinch on a pigeon, right? That's not really how they do it, but whatever. You get what I'm saying. So the Vulcan fingers come together on the bottom of the pigeon. Thumb goes over the wings. And that way you can control him. He doesn't hurt himself. You pull him out of the box. If I was hell-bent on eating these pigeons, this is what I might do. And this might be a good way to do this anyway. I might build myself some nice cages for pigeons back at my property And I might bring the pigeons home, and I might find a good soy-free, non-GMO poultry feed, and I might feed those pigeons for three or four weeks and give them good, clean water for three or four weeks, and then I might eat them, and I might get a much better-tasting bird. So that might be one way, or I might use them as a base stock so that they have babies, and I'll eat the pigeons right before they're big enough to fly, and we call that squab, and it's even better. How do you prepare a pigeon? I pretty much have always made pigeons the way I do doves. I pretty much don't do the whole bird. I yank the wings off. I open up the breast. I yank the breast and the heart out, and I throw the rest away. It's just quick and easy. I've got a video on cleaning doves this way. With pigeons, generally you have to cut their wings off with shears or a machete or a hatchet or something because they're tougher than a, uh, a dove. But I, I pretty much do them the same way. Um, with pigeons, especially adult birds, they're going to be a little tougher than a dove. So what I might do with a pigeon, if I wanted it to be tender, is get my pressure canner out and run it at about 10 PSI, 15 PSI, either one, and uh, run them for just five minutes. Just pressure cook them for five minutes. Then take them out and then do them on the grill the way you normally would. That'll tenderize them. Any tough piece of meat, guys, five minutes in a pressure cooker, and then cook it as normal. You won't get rare meat that way, but you'll get tender meat that way. Now, my favorite way to do doves and pigeons. Take a knife, you take the breast. Look down at the dividing bone in the breast. Cut a slit on both sides of that bone. Shove a slice of fresh jalapeno into each, each side of that. Wrap it in bacon, make up a mix. One part Worcestershire, two parts beer, two parts soy sauce. And paint that on it and baste it with that and cook it over hot coals unbelievable. Cook it low and slow, right? Not high and hot. Low and slow until it gets tender. 
If you have that big piece of bacon wrapped around it, it won't dry out on you cooking it slow like that. You can, only, you can also keep it a little bit more moist with your basting and all by covering it with loose foil until it's almost done and then finishing it up, flip it over, crisp the bacon at the end. Phenomenal. And pigeons are great that way. Makes me want to raise my own pigeons to eat squabs that way and not have to worry about shooting doves and finding them in the high grass. But the coal thing... It's it, there's so many wild populations of pigeons out there. You may want to find a different source, but I, you know I wouldn't I wouldn't over worry about it. You're probably getting more toxins by working there every day than you would from eating the pigeon. I will say this though: there are some toxins that associated with coal that even if you brought them home and purged them for a couple weeks and gave them better diets and all, those toxins are probably are not coming out. But uh, come to think of it, honest to God, if uh, if you're working there, you're probably getting far worse by working there than you'd ever get from eating one of those pigeons. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Matt calling from New Jersey. I uh, just started listening to your episode on the herbal items. Um, and I heard you mention Coe's Comfrey, and I just wanted to you know, give an endorsement. I am a customer of Coe's Comfrey, the owner, Tom. I've spoken to several times on the phone. Real stand-up guy. Went over and above what was necessary to, uh, you know, complete my order. Spent time talking with me about the uses and uh, methods of growing comfrey, which I, I have a good patch of comfrey growing now. And uh, it worked out great. In fact, this summer I've used it a few times uh, as a healing property. Um, one time I stubbed my toe real bad. And uh, immediately just minced up a leaf and wrapped it on there with some adhesive tape, you know, some of the first aid tape. And uh, I thought it was the type of stub where you're going to, like, lose a toenail. And uh, it never even really turned black and blue. But uh, a little bit, but not much, and it healed up real quick. And I also, uh, on my daughter, who actually had a, a puncture wound in her foot from um, stepping on a nail, which uh, I, she was all up to date on her tetanus. But I just, for two, three days, minced up some comfrey leaves, put it right, right on the wound with a Band-Aid, and it healed incredibly quickly. So just want to throw that out there. It's a great herb, and it's a great uh, company, Coast Comfrey. So take care. Great shows. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye. Yeah, I have to say, I'm very happy with the uh, the cuttings and, and plant crowns that were sent to me by Coe's Comfrey. And uh, for those who don't remember when I talked about them, uh, they ended up taking almost a month to ship my order. And uh, I was traveling. I didn't really care. Actually, I was afraid they were going to ship it while I was away, and it would be sitting outside, and my wife wouldn't pick it up, and it would bake in the sun. So it actually worked out well for me. And, I, I you know, it was one of those things that, like, yeah, oh, where's some comfrey plants? When they get here, they get here. So I wasn't worried about it. And it was almost a month after I had ordered, the man called me, and he left me a really nice personal message voicemail and sent me some extra DVDs and just said, and sent me a couple extra cuttings. And, you know, that's that's the extra mile. He's a great guy, it seems like. And uh, I can't say enough good things about Comfrey. I think that when it comes to healing herbs that you would use externally, the, the three that I find to be just fascinating and, and amazingly useful is number one is a, it's calendula and not, uh, uh, you know, that's, that's pot marigold. It's not your tagastus marigold. It's not the marigold that you see all the time at, uh, at Home Depot. It's a, it's calendula. It looks a very different looking flower. 
Uh, and that's a, that's a great herb for drawing out infections. It's a great herb for uh, reducing uh, severity of stings. And it's, it's a good eating herb, and it's a great thing to make wine with. It's just awesome. The next would be plantain or plantain, depending on, again, what part of the country you're from and what do you call it. This is not the green banana. Uh, and that has been very useful with stings and cuts, and uh, comfrey the same way. Comfrey is excellent. Any type of, like he was talking about, you know, usually having a black nail or black thumb and any kind of a bruise. It just really removes, stops, prevents. Uh, I don't know what you want to call it, bruising. Um, I do believe that comfrey has been unfairly targeted by the government. I, I, you know, of all the things they could target, I don't really get it. Uh, yes, if you ate a bucket full of it a day, it could probably cause some liver damage, but I mean, that's probably what it would take. Um, I really think that maybe what I should do is one day I should do a, a show just on comfrey. Maybe I should get this guy from Coast Comfrey on the air or somebody else that's kind of an expert in that one plant because I think it's a plant that has so much potential beyond just, oh, you can use it to make compost. Um, I, I think it is really a wonder plant, and uh, I, it's something I recommend you grow and you propagate. And the way we're propagating it right now, we're putting something straight in the guard, straight into the ground, but we made uh, six com comfrey tractors, which we just took some big shallow pans so they're not that deep so the roots can easily get to the bottom and through. We drilled like 11 16th inch holes in the bottom, a bunch of them like Swiss cheese, Filled it with go potting soil and compost and put the comfrey in there. We've got to, you know, getting it to grow now. And anywhere we want comfrey, we'll just put one of those and we'll water it for a couple weeks. And the first, you know, at first it'll take six weeks, seven weeks before it puts down all those roots and starts to push out. But once it starts to push out, it's, you know, a couple, three weeks in any location and you've got little bits of comfrey root in the ground, you twist it and move it to a different place and it propagates itself. Um, there's a lot of cool things that we could do with that technology. Uh, I don't see any reason you couldn't, couldn't propagate blackberry and raspberry that way. Um, with, with anything that would be propagated from root cutting should be able to propagate that way. And, you know, when I talked to Dave Jackie about this up in Montana, he said, why would you do that? You know, you just dig it up, cut it up in pieces and plant it. Well, the thing is, I have to disturb a mature plant. I have to dig a hole. I have to plant the mature plant back where I, you know, ripped it out of, and then I have to dig another hole to put the pieces in the ground. Where with this method, the plant stays intact, and I never have to dig a hole. And I can just keep moving it, and anywhere I can keep that pot watered, or in the times of year where I really don't have to water, is the best to do this the spring and the fall. Um, you know, I can be propagating and moving every couple of weeks and have comfrey growing all through pasture. And that, to me, is an incredibly great way to diversify things. And love comfrey. And, uh, and maybe I will reach out to the Coast Comfrey guy. Anybody that knows the guy, tell him, hey, man, I'd like to have him on the show. Fill out a guest form. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. I wanted to know Jack's rules for paleo, both starting and long-term. Um, some background, uh, um, 46 years old. Six foot three, 225 pounds, and just not feeling as energetic and as I used to. So I said I'll try anything. I tried paleo. I've been doing it about a week. It's been really tough, and you know, um, I'm rethinking it. But uh, you know, I kind of knew I was going to have to give up bread and potatoes. So you know, I make a really good sourdough. My wife makes really good Parker House rolls. But you know, I knew what I was getting into. Um, But I didn't realize, you know, I had to give up beans, 
you know, some other things. So, you know, what's your take on exactly what are the strict rules? I know you've talked about it recently, but uh, it, it means a lot more to me now that I'm actually trying to follow it. And I'm just, I'm hungry. And maybe it's because I'm still eating meat, but I haven't increased the meat enough to make up for all the sides and stuff that I can't have. So, um, you know, beans, you know, things like that. Uh, I know you don't like soybeans, but what about other beans? Are they, you know, short, short-term short stay away from them or long-term, you know, they're okay? Thanks a lot. Bye. That's a great question. Um, there's just so much misconception about paleolithic eating or paleo-style eating or uh, paleo diet. And this is the first thing you have to accept when you when you get into the world of this is going to be a model I'm going to emulate or I'm going to follow. There is no pope of paleo. There's no president of paleo. There's no paleo board. Um, and if you read 10 different authors, you'll get 10 different opinions on a lot of what you would call the moderation gray area. Where does it go from a little bit to a lot to no, at none at all. And as I've examined that, I've tried to take a little bit of a different approach to this. And when I read Rob Wolf's book, specifically, what really tripped me on, onto this is I listened to his, you know, his treatise, so to speak, on on wheat and how evil wheat is and why wheat sucks. And the basic concept is the reason that we know wheat's not a good food for us is that it actually has components of it that create digestive distress if you eat wheat berries in their raw, unadulterated form, if you can manage to choke them down. Uh, they fight back. They don't want to be eating. They repel consumption. Whereas something like uh, a blackberry actually incentivizes. It wants to be eaten. Because it knows that if something eats it, if it poops it out, it can then propagate seeds. So it's the the advantage of a blackberry to be consumed, and it's the disadvantage of a wheat berry. And then people say, well, paleo says nuts are okay. Well, what about nuts? Well, nuts, <laughs> nuts do not do anything to dissuade consumption. They don't have any kind of a chemical characteristic that says, don't eat me. Uh, in fact, they have a, a, a profile that makes many animals that says to them, eat me. And then they produce themselves in tremendous abundance. <clears throat> and, and the intrinsic natural intelligence there is if something is highly edible, produced in extensive abundance, and comes in a hard shell, much of it will be transported somewhere and propagate itself. Squirrels burying nuts don't remember where they all are, some grow. The, the, the myth that the squirrel remembers every single nut he buried everywhere it is and always goes back for it is a myth. It doesn't happen. And it's part of you know how trees propagate. And there's a lot of things like that. So when I, when I understood that, I started saying to myself, okay, let me, let me shelve all dietary dogma, my own understanding about why low carbohydrate is good. Let's just put it all on the shelf and say to myself, okay, self – If you were a Paleolithic man walking around and wandering the Paleolithic, you know, primeval forests of the world, and you were eating what was available, and you were hunting and gathering, and you had hunted and gathered and taught your child, and your dad taught you, and your granddad taught you, what would be the main things that you would consume, and how would you consume them? And my answer to that is, if I could pick it up and put it in my mouth in its raw form and it tasted good, um, it would be a primary food source. It would be like, when I see this, I'm going to, I'm going to eat as I go, right? I'm not going to always gather and hunt. Sometimes I'm going to browse as I go. And then you start to think about the foods that were available and you realize a lot of the greens and things like that were available. And then 
you know, contrary to low carb, fruits fit into that. But the thing with fruits is they're not available year round and the type of fruit, even in a place where there's a lot of fruits, will change every single week during a fruiting season. We'll have a different type of fruit with a different nutritional profile, different vitamin content, and it's going to be during an active, active part of the year. Summer, spring, fall, you're moving around, you're doing your hunting, you're gathering, you're, you're, you know, you're active. And that sugar is being used to prepare you for the leaner months and putting some fat on prior to the winter. So this is how I would actually function. And if I dug something up or pulled something off the tree and I, I tried to eat it and it tasted like crap, I would probably at least move that down to second tier. Okay, something has to be done with this. I have to prepare it in some way to make it edible. And you know, if it kills me, it goes on the don't eat list, right? And then the more work. But the longer something is storable, is going to move it into the survival food category. So early Paleolithic man certainly did harvest certain seeds and grains and store them. And we know this from finding stores of them. But we didn't find like mountains of them. You find these little pouches and stuff like that that are, you know, in some kind of position in a cave where they were found. And you realize that these were small amounts of food gathered during time of plenty to get you through week times. So I try to classify my food that way, and legumes, specifically dried beans, go in that third category. So they become a moderation food for me. Well, what about meat? Okay, meat, if, if I can kill something, I'm going to eat it, and Paleolithic man was pretty good at killing stuff. And the, uh, we can also understand that the protein profile of an insect isn't that much different than the protein profile of a cow. So insects were a huge part of the diet. Now, due to cultural bias and then just ick factor alone, and, and fl frankly, some insects just don't taste good. Um, but I guess that when you were when you were living on them and you would grow accustomed to their taste, they might not taste bad to you. But anything that's pussy or pulpy or wet uh, is an insect is I've found in you know my explorations not being something I want to eat. I don't mealworms. People eat mealworms and they just have this bleh, textural thing I don't like. But flavor's not bad. But there's certain ants that taste like almonds. And a white ant in Africa tastes like an almond. You can just pick them up alive and just eat them. They taste like almonds. You toast them, they taste like toasted almonds. I'd eat those if we had them. I don't care that it's an ant. And that's a high protein source. So meat works that way. The problem is that people in the paleo world, a lot of them coming from the CrossFit, everybody wants to be ripped, everybody wants to be pumped, everybody wants to just be this, this tough guy, and, and, and that's the kind of place that Rob Wolf comes from. <sighs> Look at that and say, well, that was all lean meats. But you, they ignore something. Very important to understand. When Paleolithic man brought down an elk or a, a buffalo or a short-faced bear or whatever it was or a mammoth, they didn't just take the steaks and the chops and the ground and, and, and leave everything behind. They used every bit of the animal. The liver and the kidneys are highly prized in any hunter-gatherer society. Some of the most highly prized things there. A lot of times they're given to elderly and children because they know that the nutritional value, the, the developing and the older need that nutritional value, laced with fat. Um, if you look at old stories about 
people that used to safari in Africa back when it was, you know, like the, the Africa evolved from 1955 and, and back when you could go there and take the big five and there were big parties and there were 30, 30 person operations to support one, one Bawana and his, his white hunter, right? Um, they, they had, and they had all these roles, the cook and the, everything. The, one of the highest ranks you could have other than gun bearer was a skinner. Skinner was a highly sought-after position, and it doesn't seem like something you'd want to do, but the Skinner wasn't just a Skinner. They were a gutter, right? And they would they would take care of cleaning the animal. And that meant that all of the stuff that the Bawana and, and the White Hunter didn't really care about, they got first dibs on. And the first thing they do is take the fat out of the, the abdomen, and they, they'd crave that. So by, by looking at these things, we know that, the, that this lean meat concept that some paleo people have is just not consistent because the fat content of a deer when you eat the kidneys, the liver the marrow uh, the, the, all of the organ meats and you're rendering tallow and you're using it in, in pemmican right? the fat content is so much higher than a, a lean cut of steak And those lean cuts of meat would be preserved. So where am I going with this? My rules are, would I pick it up, put it in my mouth, and eat it raw? If all safety considerations were put aside. So would I pick up a raw piece of meat and eat it? You bet. You bet I would. And it tastes good, too. I don't advise you to go do it with our modern system. And, and the fact that our bacterial uh, fauna in our stomach are not what they were at a time when people routinely ate raw meat. But it tastes good. So meat, Yes. When I look at potatoes, I, have you ever tried a sliced piece of sweet potato? I think it tastes very good. A white potato, not so much. And, and then it just turns out that the profile of a sweet potato makes it a little bit better. It still can be something that can make you fat if you eat too much of it. It can still spike insulin levels, but it's much lower than the glycemic index of a white potato. By the way, a white potato has a higher glycemic index than glucose. A white potato has a higher sugar response rate in your blood than actual sugar does. You can look it up if you don't believe me. Okay, so I try to stay against anything that's going to spike my blood sugar and anything I wouldn't eat in its natural raw state as my guidelines. I do not shun dairy. I don't. I am looking right now trying to find, can we please find somebody in this area I can get raw milk from without driving 60 miles. Um, I am interested in starting to make more of our own yogurts, Uh, our own cheeses, but I want raw milk for it. And what I've learned from a, a person here on the blog is that raw milk has an enzyme that helps the body deal with lactose, and lactose intolerant people that use raw milk don't have a problem, by and large. Maybe there's some here and there, but by and large. This is what I think the problem with paleo is. The people that are pioneers in paleo are all people that had chronic health problems. Um, raw wolf, celiacs, okay? Uh, which means they cannot process gluten well. So when they go to this radical paleo, you know, what I call a radical version of paleo, they feel so much better. If they try to eat milk or they try to eat some gluten in it at all, they freaking just crash. And they go, see? Well, not everybody has that problem. I think you want to keep all refined sugars, all refined carbohydrates out, gone. No high fructose corn syrup, no white cane sugar, especially early on then I think that things that are high in car carbohydrate need to be kept in moderation, and the diet needs to be mainly made up of fatty meat. Whether you do it through organ meats, like our paleo ancestors did, or fattier cuts. 
I don't think you have to go 100% free-range organic. Uh, that's my dream. But availability and cost make it where I can't do that all the time. You know, that's why we're pasturing our own poultry to make that one piece of it. But fat has got to be a major component here. And I don't care if it comes from dairy or it comes from uh, uh, fat from animals. If it comes from dairy, I'm fine with it. I put whole cream in my coffee. If you're hungry and you drink coffee, tomorrow morning put two to three tablespoons of whole cream in a cup of coffee and drink that cup of coffee. It will be one of the most rich, delicious cups of coffee you ever had, and you won't be hungry for quite a while. Next, you said you're not, you haven't upped the meat yet, so you've cut out all this other stuff, but you haven't replaced it? You've got to replace it. In my first two months of this, I ate like a tiger. I would cook a whole slab of bacon and eat the whole, whole slab of bacon. Don't worry about it. You'll quit. You'll stop doing that eventually. But in, in, in the first point where your body's like going, I'm hungry, it's conditioned to eat sugar. And I'm sorry whether you like this or not. Sugar from a potato or sugar from a fruit or sugar from a candy has the same response in the body. And your body quickly converts carbohydrates whether complex or not, into glucose. Quickly. Very, very quickly. And, it, it, you know, glycemic index is a guide, but you can't live by it. And the reality is your body will convert protein into glucose. 60% of the calories that you consume from protein will eventually become glucose. The other 40% will be used as proteins by the body in certain different ways with muscular structure and things like that. But 60% of your protein calories become glucose. There's only one thing that your body will burn without converting it to glucose. And really burn it for fuel. That's fat. So fat has to make up part of the diet. And if you put fat in the diet, you'll start to be satiated. You'll feel better. Here's the thing. You're not going to be happy your first two weeks. You're really not. Your, 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 your body's addicted to sugar. That's the truth right now. Your body's addicted to sugar. It's like expecting a person. Like, if you're a heroin addict, we all know the solution. No more heroin. What do you think you're going to feel like for the first couple weeks? Worse is the body detoxifies and learns to deal without what it's become addicted to. Your body's addicted to the dopamine that it creates for itself when you eat sugar right now. And you, you have to change the functionality. So... I've done a lot of episodes on paleo. If you want a deeper understanding of my paleo stance, I would just search paleo and start listening to some episodes. Maybe next week I'll do an episode all on paleo. Uh, it's in danger of happening right now if I don't cut it off. But that's my basic things. Would I pick it up and eat it in its raw state? And I do not shun dairy. Beans, I like beans like green beans. All right, Stuff that has not yet fully matured, where it's more of a vegetable than a true protein, legume, carbohydrate Ill, right? But I will eat some beans. And the last thing I want to say on this is I am not a purist. I am not a paleo purist. The other last week I, I ate some ice cream. That is not on the paleo lifestyle. But life's too short to not occasionally indulge. It's just not a regular component of my diet. And in the first stages, first two or three months, you got to treat it like heroin. There is no ice cream, right? There is no piece of cake. There is no piece of pie. You, if you do it long enough, a lot of that stuff, when you do say, well, I'm going to go ahead and have a piece of it, it won't taste that good. If you've only been like trying to shake it for two or three weeks, it'll be like crack. you got to break the addiction first. Let's take another call. 
Brother Spearco. This is Jay in Kansas, longtime listener. Uh, second year polyculture homestead in full bloom here after a great deal of rain in recent months. With that rain has came a bloom of mushrooms, including turkey tail, that cancer wonder mushroom. And after a positive identification times three, I know I now wonder how to sustain this great little fungi on my one-acre homestead. Obviously, it may naturally do so anyway, but I want to ensure it. So what's the story with collecting spores from this turkey tail present? And growing something from these spores, of course. Secondly, would you consider doing a weekly half hour on recent news? Yes, I know you don't like concentrating on that, and that's all good and fine. We, I understand it personally. But many of us dig your take on recent uh, things that are going on. And uh, I jones for anything but... Um, or maybe at least recommend us what sites you visit to acquire that social responsibility known as being aware of your surroundings. Thanks, man. Bye. Um, I am no expert at the propagation of mushroom spores, and from the research I've done, it's quite complex. Inoculation with spores that somebody else provided you, uh, pretty easy. Creating your own spores, uh, difficult. I don't think you're going to have to do anything, though. I, I think that it will continue to, to reproduce. Now, this is what I would do. I would follow the permaculture principle of observe and interact. Where did they show up, and what were the conditions in which they showed up in? What time of year? What growth medium? What was the shade like? What was the moisture like? What was everything like in that area? And keep providing the resources. So if I have a mushroom that's that's showing up on, on fallen oak logs, then I'm going to keep adding some new oak logs to that area every year. Or if it's growing in, in, in wood mulch, I'm going to keep adding wood mulch and, and maybe sawdust to that of the same species. If it's moist and, and, and it, it, the moisture is at about a certain level and this next year it's a little bit drier than last year, I might put a little irrigation into an area that I normally wouldn't irrigate to, to encourage that repeat activity. But I think that you'll probably have these things showing up for a very long time now. The only way you won't is if you're in a, a, a progressive succession system where the system's going so far forward in a succession that the conditions that generated those mushrooms change such that they're not going to show up anymore. Uh, all of the, all of the fuel is used up, so to speak. And the new fuel, the new fallen matter isn't quite what the, the turkey tail wants. And I'm not an expert in turkey tail mushrooms either. But I would keep doing what you're doing. And I, I would look for that to continue. And if you want to encourage it, probably the easiest thing to do is to is see if you could find a source of turkey tail spores that you know are good, viable spores, and inoculate the areas where they already are doing well. Um, what I should probably do is find us an expert on uh, mushroom propagation and do a show on it, because it's something I... You want me to do mushroom propagation? I know to buy... Uh, known good quality uh, uh, sp uh, mushroom spawn and to inoculate stuff. I do not know how to generate the spawn. And I know you have to be really, really careful with sanitation and things like that. Um, and, and to me, it, it seems a little ludicrous because of how many mushrooms just show up at the right place on the, all on their own. And, you know, I, part of why I think I'm not a big mushroom propagator is that I grew up in Pennsylvania where... I don't think anybody even considered propagating mushrooms. 
there were so many different wild mushrooms to be had, everything from puffballs to, to sponges to, to ram's heads, uh, uh, chicken in the woods, all these different uh, mushrooms were just available that we never really thought about. it. So that's something I'll look into deeper. But, I mean, my best advice is to evaluate exactly the conditions that they turned up under and look at what part of that system is in degradation. In other words, if they're growing on logs and there's a certain type of log and those logs are going to be broken down after a few years, keep adding new ones to that area. If they're growing on tree stumps, then maybe you have logs that you're burying into the ground to mimic stumps. So, so mimicry is highly valuable here and continuing to, continuing to create the conditions that generated what you wanted in the first place. The big reason I included this question, even though I can't give you a huge answer on it, is that I think it's an excellent example of our second question of the day on gardening, where I said you're creating an ecosystem. This is what's happened. You've created an ecosystem, and nature is starting to fill the void instead of with weeds, but with things you want. And that's because you've created a healthy ecosystem. So good job, and keep up what you're doing. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Uh, I have a question on dehydration. Um, I have a number of cans of vegetables, specifically corn and peas, um, that are reaching the expiration date. Um, what do you think about dehydrating those and um, extending their shelf life? Uh, just wonder what you thought. Thanks for a great show. Take care. Bye. Uh, there's no reason you can't do it. It absolutely will work, and it will extend the life of them. There's a couple of things I'd like to say on top of that, though. It's an inexpensive product uh, that only has a limited nutritional value to begin with, so it may not be worth the added inputs to get it done. It may be more uh, beneficial to actually just get a hold of stuff that's been prepared that way for peas and corn. Um, if you're storing canned peas and corn and storing what you eat and what you store, then maybe this shouldn't happen. So if you're only storing canned peas and corn uh, as a long-term storage because they're not part of your mainstay everyday diet, and for me they wouldn't be, um, then I, I get that. So you can certainly extend their shelf life with the dehydration if you want to. It will work. Um, but I, I do want to point out that, you know, that little date on the can, uh, our, our, our good folks at the uh, Food and Drug Administration would, would love you to believe that the day before that date shows up, that that food is just spectacular, wonderful food to eat. And the day after it, it'll kill you dead. And it's just not the case. Um, most canned food can easily go two or three years past the expiration date. So there's no huge urgency to use these. Depending on the, the quantity, I would either go ahead with your plan of dehydration or, you know, we're talking about a couple cases of peas and corn. And we're talking about something that's maybe 25 bucks worth of stuff or 30 bucks or even 50 bucks worth of stuff. You might really want to consider taking it down to a food pantry and donating it, getting the receipt and deducting it from your taxes. It may be more valuable to you that way than putting in the additional inputs for dehydration. But if you want to dehydrate it, it certainly will work. Um, it won't be quite of the quality that a blanched product would be because it's not blanched. It's fully cooked. You know, the canning process, um, the commercial canning process especially, um, really knocks the nutrient value of food way, way down, and it's fully cooked. So you're dehydrating something that's fully cooked. It's not that it won't work. It's just that it, it may not provide a product that you're really happy about using someday. Uh, and, and you may be, again, better suited donating that and, and putting something into your long-term storage that either has a much longer shelf life to begin with or a higher food value where you would be using it and not eventually letting it expire. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. I'm John West Virginia. 
I was at the local convenience store buying some malted beverages and uh, got my change back. And on a $1 bill in red marker, it read, I miss America. I don't know if it's related or not, but I thought it was kind of neat. That's all I got me. Well, John, it's a very cool story, and hearing from you is always cool. And I'm still working through that 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 menage of uh, of calls that you you threw at me. Uh, and so we're going to do one a week until I run out of John calls, and then hopefully you'll make some more because I love hearing from you, brother. Um, but I don't know if you're if you've been reading the 299 days series, but that comes out of there, and it sounds to me like someone's done a little bit of dollar bill graffiti with the "I Miss America" message from 299 days. And that is on uh, the T-shirts that we have at the TSP Gear Shop. And I'll put a link to those today. And uh, it's a play on things, you know. Miss America and I Miss America. Um, that's kind of cool, man. And uh, I don't have a lot to say about it other than thanks for reporting that. And if anybody else finds a bill that says that on it, let us know. And uh, I think technically it's illegal to do that, but I don't know that anybody's going to do anything to anybody for doing that. And I don't know how they would know who did it. So maybe, maybe all right. I miss America on a few dollar bills, and if you see some with some sloppy handwriting, maybe they came from me. Again, if anybody else has found this, I'd love to hear about it. Let's take another call. Hello, Jack. I'm calling from Key West, Florida, otherwise known as Margaritaville, and my question is: What can I grow in Zone 11? Uh, I'm currently growing. Right now, at this moment, uh, turmeric, ginger, and Tabasco peppers. And I'm having great success with uh, the turmeric. I'm having the bumper crop this year and uh, the ginger also. Uh, just wondering what else I could grow down here in Tropical Zone 11. And I appreciate your comments and everything you do. Thank you. You know what me and every other person that doesn't live in a place like that wants to say to you right now? Anything you want, damn it, you stupid jerk. I mean, really, that's that's how everybody probably feels. Like, what do you mean? It doesn't freeze there. You can grow anything you want. You can't really grow anything you want. Uh, and I'm only playing with you there. But, I mean, that's sometimes how those of us that don't live in tropic and subtropic regions feel. It's like jerks could grow anything you want down there. I mean, about the only thing you can't grow are certain things like cherries and certain apples and stuff because they have a chilling requirement, right? So that, that's it. Pretty much you can grow anything else you want. Now, what won't do good for you, uh, alliums, like onions and stuff like that because of day length, sensitivity, most of those won't do. It gives you some garlic chives and chives and stuff like that. But really big, nice, giant onions, that's, that's more of a long day length crop uh, that won't do as well for you down there. But just about anything else. I mean, you almost can't fail growing stuff you want. What is, what's actually more interesting is some of the things you can do that we can't. So one thing I would do is I'd have passion fruit everywhere. I'd have all kinds of passion flowers, all different types of passion fruits. I'd have that growing up your walls, up your trees, everywhere you and just love the, the the concept that you can do that. You can grow avocados, dude. You can grow mangoes. You can, you can grow everything that we can't. Um, you can grow citrus. Um, one of the really, you mentioned peppers. Peppers are a perennial where you live. They'll live for three, four, five, six, seven years or more. I'd have every kind of freaking chili pepper under the sun growing and some sweet ones too. Um, there's not much you can't grow. 
You can grow all the herbs that we can grow and more. You can grow a lot of things that become perennials that to us are annuals. Um, you can grow, you know, you can grow carrots. I mean, what can't you grow? Um, you can even do lettuce and stuff in your winter. You get the, you know, days in the 40s sometimes here and there and you get your cooler temperatures and you can grow your greens and things like that in the winter. Um, f- frankly, it's hard for me to tell you what you can't grow. Um, but I would really, if I lived in a climate like yours, man, I would have as much fruit going on as I possibly could. Tropical stuff. Uh, mangoes. Uh, I would look at uh, pineapple guava, which is something I can even grow here, but you can really grow the hell out of pineapple guava. Um, I would definitely be growing banana and or plantain. If I'd probably grow plantain over banana uh, as a as a potato substitute. Uh, you can grow taro, which we can also pull off here, but you can really do it really well there. You can grow yimica. Um, again, I have a hard time thinking of what you can't grow. You can't grow peas very well except in your, your short winter because it's too hot. You can't grow lettuce except in your short winter because it's too hot. Um, spinach might even be tough in your limited winter because it's probably still a bit warm for it, but it'd be okay. Um, you can go nuts with it, man. Um, watch Jeff Lawton's videos and all the stuff that I'm like, I can't grow that, I can't grow that, I can't grow that, I can't grow that, I can't grow that. You can grow all that stuff. So, uh, man, I, I'd like to see what you what you do next. And if you want to like call back with a follow up, and instead of having me just go anything you want, me, have me get a little bit more specific for you. Call back. And give me a little bit of a description of your property, because obviously if you have a tenth of an acre versus a quarter of an acre versus a half of an acre, and you're probably not that big of a lot in a place like Key West lands at a premium, uh, it kind of changes where your priorities would be. And, and talk about what you like to eat. But I would tell you there's probably a booming uh, you know, local produce you know, in the Keys and all kinds of local stuff that's available there. And go sample stuff and grow what you like. I mean that that's that's the best advice I can give you. But something I would uh, that I'm envious that you can do because all I can grow here is maypop, which is a passion flower, but it's not like the passion fruits you can grow is passion fruit. And anywhere you can trellis something, I'd have passion flower on it. And uh, that's just a just a, a knock out wonderful healthy thing to make drinks out of it and do other things with. It's just wonderful. And the, the amount of insect activity it creates and this, its beauty and everything else about it is just awesome. I saw, I, I like this show called Bizarre Foods by Andrew Zimmer. And uh, a lot of you guys have probably watched that over the years. And he just did one where they were in St. Croix. And there was a guy living in St. Croix. Made me want to just pack up and move right now and just go live there. This dude had about, I'd say it looked like about a third to a quarter of an acre, somewhere in that range, maybe a half. It was hard to tell. Uh, but he had all these different tropical fruits growing in his backyard. And he had a bunch of cages. And in these cages were crabs. These are land crabs like we used to see all over Panama. And land crab is, it tastes like crab, but it tastes like garbage. Um, because they eat anything they can, get, they can get their little pinchers on. And they live in mud. And a lot of the street vendors in Panama used to, you know, serve these things on, you know, street food. And I tried it a couple of times and it was just kind of muddy. So I was either eating land crabs. I'm like, I don't know about this. Well, here's what he was doing. He had these traps out everywhere and he was catching these land crabs and he had a bunch of cages. Each cage has its own day. So you know how long the crabs have been in the cage. Then he had bananas growing in his backyard and he's like cutting slices of banana and feeding them to the crabs and giving the crabs time to purge their systems of of the of the, uh, the the muck that they're living in and the garbage that they're living on, 
So by the time the crab's been there a couple weeks, he's ready to graduate into a pot and be boiled and, and cooked with other vegetables and stuff. And uh, he tastes like a Maryland blue crab at that point. So this guy just has these free crabs that he picks up in like these, these junk areas and puts in a cage for a couple weeks and feeds bananas that he's growing in his backyard. And he's got food everywhere in his backyard. Then his brother spearfishes. He has like this little skiff that he keeps at the beach that no one steals. He goes out and spearfishes like four or five fish you've never seen before in your life. The two of them meet down at the beach. They pay this dude a dollar that picks up scrap pallets and stuff like that and has a little fire set up. So you pay him a dollar and he lets you use his firewood and it gives you a little area and all. They have a squatter dude on the beach. Then they sit down and they eat these fruits and vegetables from the dude's backyard, the crabs and the fish. They rub them with all these herbs from the garden. And I'm like, man, I want to live that way. Well, guess what, dude? You can live that way. And the main reason I played your call, clearly you're a parrot head because you used the term Margaritaville. So uh, I'm actually... Uh, with no plan whatsoever in it, didn't even think about it, just got up and put it on. I'm wearing a t-shirt right now that I can put to say it's in your honor today. It says it's 5 o'clock somewhere. Anyway, great call. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. It's Daryl in Pennsylvania again. I've got a question and a comment for you. The question being, I'm very interested in making animal stock. Um, but boiling it down, what pound animal critter type parts for water gallons would you recommend what makes a, a good solid stock. Secondly, my comment is um, uh, just getting your kids involved. Um, my wife is very reluctant for any type of prepper, survivalism type things, but um, my son, he soaks it in. He's three. He loves it. We make a lean-to in the living room, and he says, hey, I want to do this in the woods. So, I mean, if your wife doesn't want to do it, your spouse doesn't want to do it, you know, hell with them. Take your kid with you. Um, so just wanted to put that in there. Uh, thank you for your information. Bye. Well, let's uh, let's talk about this uh, this stock question first because it's a pretty easy one. It doesn't matter. Don't overthink making stocks and soups, guys. Throw as much of this stuff as you have in a pot. Cover it with water. Start simmering it. Add a little bit more water, and then to decide, you know, what do you want to make? Do you want to make a nice clear broth? And if you do, spend some time skimming it. And if not, don't worry about it. Um, I, I, how much? Do I, you know, animal critter parts do I use when I make stock? I use whatever I have. How much water do I use? At least enough to cover it up and probably to cover it at least by a few inches. And I'll just keep cooking it. And if I need to add some water, I'll add some water and I'll, you know, and I'll decide how rich I want it to be based on how far I want to cook it down. Um, if I want it to be concentrated, I'll cook it way, way down. And uh, by the time you do that, you end up with a really thick, concentrated stock. And I'll put those in ice cube trays sometimes. And then, you know, once they're frozen, break them out of the ice cube trays and freeze them as individual, you know, servings for cooking in Ziploc bags and keep it frozen. Otherwise, you know, it just gets used right away to make a soup or to cook with. Um, but I don't – there's – you know, this is one of these things where I think we put too much of an emphasis anymore on recipes. Last night I made fajitas. And I think Josiah put a picture on uh, uh, Brink of Freedom today in a, an article called Paleo Fajitas. And if you ask me for the recipe on them, I don't know. Dude, I don't know. I have this powder that I make out of uh, uh, Anaheim and jalapeno, green chili peppers, and, and dried garlic. And I just put all three of those. How much? I don't know. About a 50-50 you know, ratio of jalapenos to Anaheim's. So it's not too hot uh, in a coffee grinder with probably, I don't know, two tablespoons of dehydrated garlic. And I mince that all together until it's a powder. 
I sprinkled that on it because the way that it looked right. I put some cracked pepper on it. I put some chili powder and paprika on it, and then I grilled it. I, I don't know. I mean, I I think we have gotten into this 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 part of our, our minds and society has gotten to like there's a right way and there's a wrong way, and it really it's not that simple. It, it's actually much more simple. It, you can't screw it up unless you do something really wrong. So if you want to make stock, throw whatever you have to make stock in a pot and boil it until it's the way you like it. And give yourself a mission to experiment. And if you put too much water and it's too thin, cook it down until it has the consistency, the body, and the flavor you like. And if you think to yourself, well, this is a richer stock than I wanted, add water to it. This is one of those things you really can't mess up. Now, as far as getting your kids involved, I couldn't agree more. And I don't think it has anything to do with whether or not your spouse is reluctant. I think it's just important to get kids involved with a lot of this stuff anyway. Um, it, it, it does bother me how many people today still have like this resistance to anything that's prepper-ish or self-sufficient or self-reliant. And while I understand the psychology, it, it just bugs me. Um, I would say those of you that have reluctant spouses to, to make this offer, If you'll choose one thing we can do together that's related to this, just one, and do it with me. Whatever you pick, I'll do, and I'll figure out how to make it fun and make you enjoy it. And see if they, they're and if they're not willing, don't push and what have you. But I don't know, man. Some some people, and I almost think that maybe some of you with some reluctant spouses say, "Could you could you have you listen to this guy just for the last five minutes today?" Because I'm talking to you guys that are resistant like this, whether you're male or female, doesn't matter to me. Why? What's, I mean, I know one person that came here and visited me that said, you know, he kind of got into this about five years ago and did it mostly as a nutrition and health standpoint and went off all the garbage food that's out there and started growing a garden. And the first couple of years it failed and his wife was like, see, it doesn't work. And really, you know, God, you know, you're supposed to love this other person. Really? That's your response. And now he's got it. He's figured it out. He's got it booming. He's got all this wonderful food coming out of the garden. She won't eat anything that comes out of the garden because she sees it as a survival thing. The heck is wrong with people? You know, I had a, a, a one of my nieces over, not nieces, I guess my niece-in-law, I don't know, is married to my nephew. Okay, that's the way I'll put it. And I offered her some eggs. She's like, no. I'm like, do you guys eat eggs? Oh, all the time. You don't want any of my eggs? No. Well, why not? Because sometimes when you get fresh eggs like that and you open it up, there's a little blood spot in there, and that's the chicken. That's what a yolk is. That's what a freaking yolk is. It doesn't make any sense. So she's willing to, she's like, she's, and this lady's concerned about nutrition. She's willing to feed her kids crap eggs from the store but not fresh eggs from our, our homestead. And at least hers is kind of more like a, an ick factor. It's not a, just a blunt resistance to the fact that it's anything homesteadish or what have you. I, I think that our society has become sick. And I don't mean physically. I mean emotionally, spiritually, and mentally. We've become sick because we've divorced ourselves from who and what we really are. This survival thing that some people seem to have is not about stocking up for the end of the world as we know it. If you, you know, if you are willing to listen to this little piece that, that somebody that loves you asks you to listen to, hey, meet them, meet them a little further out and, and, and check out what we're doing here. 
you'll hear very little about zombies and the apocalypse and the end of the world as we know it. You'll hear about things like making sure your kids aren't scared in the dark and falling down the stairs when there's a blackout and they were right at the top of the stairs right before the lights went out. Okay? Now, if I, anybody resistant to that, what, what's, what possible, what possible reason could you have against doing something like that? The fact that you walk around all the time in your house, you just take for granted that you'll be able to see where you're going, and you could be right at the precipice of a step, and the lights go out because some guy at the factory did something wrong, and they're going to be out for five minutes. But how long does it take you to fall down the stairs? How long does it take for your little kid to be scared and crying? You know, what if really inexpensively a few lights just came on right away so everybody could kind of see and figure out where they're going? Wouldn't that be great if that happened at a time there was a fire in the house and that's where the power went out and at least you could see your way to get out of the house? These are simple things. I really didn't plan on talking about the reluctant spouse thing or what have you uh, when I screened this call, but it's, it's where I'm going now and I'm letting kind of the spirit move me with it. This resistance stuff, it doesn't make any sense. Let me tell you why, if you're the reluctant one, why you have it. You don't want to accept the fact that anything can go wrong or things like that don't happen here. I'm sorry, that's not the way it works. If you have a TV, you probably saw a little event called Hurricane Sandy recently. There's a lot of people that just sat there going, when's help coming? I don't, and they were mad that help didn't come. And they had, you know, all the way up until the day of the storm hit to do something for themselves. And they even had the time after if they had some resources and knowledge. This prepper thing or survival thing, as some people put it, is it's not, it's not an abnormal way to be. Actually, ignoring it and calling it abnormal is what's abnormal. It really is. The, everything that we talk about here in this community is things that in, in 1955, if you would have told somebody that, they would have said, of course, dummy. Well, you should have a little more food than you're going to use this week because, you know, hard times could hit. Of course, you, Doug, did you fall off the turnip truck yesterday? Right? You know, you should have a way to make sure you can keep your house warm if the power goes out. Duh. Where are you from? New York City? I mean, seriously, this is, this is how everybody in the nation lived just a little more than 50 years ago. And all that we're saying here is let's take all of that wisdom and common sense and then be grateful for the wonderful things we have that they didn't. The technologies and the conveniences and the luxuries. There's nothing wrong with those things. But let's put some redundancies underneath them. Because a lot of you folks out there couldn't draw a map to save your life and someday you might have to. Someday you might have to. If you can't draw a map where north is up, south is down, and you can't use like things directions like east and north and south and west, you may need to be telling somebody how to go somewhere someday, and somebody's life might depend on it, and because you won't take the time to learn something that simple. And, and laugh if you want, if you know how, but uh, how many people don't? And the person laughing that's resistant right now, I, if I kept going, I'll find something you can't do that somebody else will laugh about. This is that common sense oriented. I'm sorry. And I know you're going, man, they picked this one to get me, and I agreed to this, and now I'm getting browbeaten. Look, I'm just trying to break through. 
I'm just trying to make a case to you. Either one of you could lose your job tomorrow. What would your household look like in 30 days after that, 60 days after that, 90 days after that, or one year if that person did not find another job within a year? Oh, we'll always find a job. Really? Because that worked out for everybody else that lost a job that tried to. Everybody that's on employment for two years right now, the 99 weekers that are losing their unemployment and falling off the end of it, every one of them just didn't want another job. They just didn't try. They just were lazy and collected their check. Or do you think some of them actually tried and failed? What does it look like if right now everything in your house just goes and the power goes out for whatever reason? For two weeks. Not for 20 years. Not we've been bombed or EMP'd or the coronal sun thing or just, just two weeks. Power just goes out for two weeks. What does your household look like at the end of those two weeks? How much money will it cost you? How much misery will it cause you? How simple would it be to have an $80 power inverter that you can hook up to your car? These are just simple things. If you're the reluctant spouse, I have a request for you. You've met your spouse this far. You've met your spouse this far. You've listened to me for this long. Don't listen to the rest of this episode. It's probably not something you're ready for yet. It was all over the place. It's a call-in show. It's people that are asking questions about everything from gardening to food storage. Just... Just when you get to the end of this one, just you're done with this episode. Have your spouse look up for you an episode I did almost five years ago, episode 69. You know, flipping the reluctant spouse, I think is what I called it. Do me a favor. Listen to that episode. Know that back when I did that, I actually used to do this in my car. And it's been a long time since I've had audio quality. It wasn't quite up to snuff, and it, it won't sound as crisp and clear as the audio does here to be some road noise and things like that. But give the person that loves you 45 minutes to listen to that episode and listen with your heart and your mind open and see if it doesn't change the way you think about your future. And then understand this. This is not a group of crazy people. Back when I did that episode, there were about a thousand people that listened to me teach preparedness. And this week, our average number of listeners per day was over 85,000 people. 85,000 people. They're moms and dads, just like you. They're everything from homesteaders to soccer moms. I've had... People, and I've talked about this this week, I've had people that have come up to me at events and hugged me and cried because they feel like this saved their life. I've had a veteran who had no direction in his life and felt like no one cared that told me there was one night I had my .45 in my mouth. And I don't know why I didn't do it, but I didn't. And not long after, I found this, and this changed my life. And now I know how important I am to my children. And I know I'm going to make it. And I know no matter what happens, I'm going to be okay. I had a woman come to me that was in her 60s that had a government job that paid a great salary that she could never lose. And she had an illness strike her down. 
she ended up on disability for a couple thousand dollars a month. And this was a woman that had previously been making a six-figure salary. She was in huge debt. She found what we do here. She changed her life for the better. And the disaster struck. And when it did, the debt that would have weighed her down like a ton of bricks was gone. The home was mostly paid for, the expensive home. She couldn't stay there. She didn't want to at that point. But she was able to sell it, didn't have any debt to pay off, take the money from the sale of the home. And then between that, finding a smaller place and the disability she had, she felt like she had just simply retired early and she was living a wonderful life. And she said, if I hadn't found this a few years ago, this would have never happened. It would have destroyed me. That's what we do. We present, prevent disasters when we can, and we are ready to stand through them when they can't be prevented. The health condition this woman had, it just simply wasn't in the cards to be prevented. But she was prepared, even though she had no idea that's what she was preparing for. And I was standing in a booth when she was telling me her story, and I got out of the booth and I hugged her. And I said, thank you for telling me that. It means what we're doing matters. If you've come this far, give me one more chance to talk to you. One more chance to tell you why this is a better way to live. And why it will be such that a couple years from now, you'll look back and wonder how you ever did it any differently. Why you ever did it any differently. And I'll tell you this, it'll help you live a better life. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. And this is the key, or even if they don't. In our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
revolution is you.